Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. And today, I am thrilled to welcome a new friend to Ground Control Parenting, Dr. Janice Diaz, who has just written a parenting book that I can't wait for us to dive into. It's called Parenting Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful, Change-Making Girls. Dr. Diaz is an associate professor of sociology at John Jay College here in New York City. She's also the co-founder and president of the public health and social action organization, Grassroots Community Foundation, and she leads its super camp for girls. She's devoted her life to nurturing and training girls to become change makers, and now has gathered her wisdom and advice into a book to share with us all. She and her husband, Scott, are the proud parents of their 16-year-old daughter, Marley, who's a social activist, the founder of the hashtag 1000 Black Girl Books Drive, the author of Marley Diaz Gets It Done and So Can You, and the host of Bookmark Celebrating Black Voices on Netflix Junior. Yay, Marley. (laughs) Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Janice. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm always excited to talk to people who read this book. (laughs) Well, I am thrilled to have you here. First of all, congratulations on the publication of your book, Parent Like It Matters. You know, for years, and listeners know from the early days of the podcast and my blog readers, I've always talked about how parents should parent the children they have, not the ones they were or the ones they wanted. And so when I opened your book, and in your intro, read that you were focused on the practice of, quote, parenting the children we have, not the children we want to have, I knew that I had found a kindred spirit and I wanted to hear more. So I'm so excited to have you here and to talk with you about your focus on helping us all become more intentional, joyful parents. Well, I am excited to to be here to talk about that. That's a big issue for me. I know so many of us have imaginings of the children that um, are in front of us. And I really think if we lean in a little bit more to the kids that we actually have, we would get a lot more um, in return. So I'm excited to always talk about that issue. And I feel so excited to have that be the the gateway to our conversation because that's mm-hmm. such su- such a central part of what I think it takes for us to be joyful and for the kids themselves to be joyful. So I I found myself really as I dove into this book I found myself nodding in agreement with so many many things that you raised so many chapters there's so much great parenting advice so I could go into every chapter but. For this conversation, I want to talk about a few that really resonated with me, and I'm sure they'll resonate with our listeners. The first one is the importance of parents knowing themselves. Before we we dive into how we can help our children be better children and better people, I was so excited to read about your focus on how parents need to turn the mirror around and turn the mirror towards themselves and to focus on working through issues from our past, which could interfere with clear-headed parenting. I'm just going to read one of your quotes and then ask you to elaborate. You said, we can become powerful examples of self-empowered women and men, I'm sure, who can inspire our girls to become their best selves. However, we can do this only if and when we attend to our past gains and lighten our own emotional loads. Can you tell me a little bit about your view of the connection of the past emotional loads and how that relates to parenting? Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about that because I think, you know, in writing this book and coming to it and having worked with these families for over a decade, one of the things that 
I see repeated over and over again is that somehow parenting is just about the kid, right? That Mm -hmm. caregivers are really high level servants to these young people and the absence of attention to you as a real actor in the parenting. And that has been a source of frustration to me because so much of who we are directs what we actually do with our kids, our own taste, Um, things that we have, things that we think about, our philosophies, all of those things are us. And so certainly our pains and our desires are going to be a part of what we do for especially Black and brown folk who, you know, I'm 49, who grew up with a particular kind of parenting practice. There were many riches in what our caregivers did. And there were many things that they did out of love, but did not serve us well. And certainly you cannot be a young person who is Black and grow up in the world without having some engagement with really problematic structures. So when you get to the point that you're having your kid and raising children, this is all going to be here. It's all going to be yours to deal with. So the question is, you can go about your business of parenting and pretend they're not here, that these issues are not salient, they're not active, or you can take stock of them. And when you take stock of stuff, then you don't trip over it. Because that's my concern is the tripping over. It's like not seeing the cord on the floor, right? And all of a sudden you fall, and we know, especially at my age, like you fall, there are real consequences. So it's not to suggest that pains are simply going to go away, but you want to be in relationship with that pain, know that pain, know that that's present so that you don't inadvertently pass that on to your children. You certainly going to pass something on, right? Like you going to trust. <laughs> no one gets out of this parenting gig without having done some damage. What you want to do is just have the minimum amount of damage possible. And I argue that that's possible if you have a real sense of who are you? Where, mm-hmm. what role are you playing as a person in the parenting game. It's not just about the kid. It is about you in relationship with that kid. And I think Black Mm -hmm. folk in particular have a lot of pains, um, pains within family, pains within the structure that we really have to unburden in order to really do this gig really well. And in a way that doesn't feel like more pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I hear you. I agree 100%. And and I want to talk a little, I'm going to get into a little bit more about recovery from that pain. But imagine that people listening are thinking, well, I, I don't feel like I'm in active pain now. I mean, I'm, I'm adult. I've, you know, whatever trauma I've experienced, I'm, I'm, I, it doesn't really relate to me telling my child to, you know, go to bed when it's time to go to bed. Uh, but but you talk about in your book the the concept of adverse childhood experiences, things that are deeply rooted that we don't really focus on as part of our adult lives, but that can sometimes be triggered by something that comes up when it comes to parenting. You relay in your book a story which I actually related to, and I'll, I'll talk about why in a second. Um, but with respect to when you were pregnant, that you thought your mom would come and be with you for the birth of of your child as you just expected that. And she expected not to because she figured she had her kids on her own and you could have yours on your own. (laughs) And so 
And you talked a lot about sort of recovering from that. How did you work through that? Explain for us first sort of how that sort of impacted you as you were thinking about your child and parenting. And also, once you realized that was something that you needed to push through, how you were able to do so. Yeah. So, um, so I really thought, you know, I was good. Like I really thought, um, and I think many of us feel really good. Like I felt up until that point, I felt like I had dealt with, I, you know, I know my mama is the way she is. Right. And all of Mm -hmm. what that means. I know my brothers, my family, like at least at 34, 35, I felt that I felt like I, I'm good. Like I felt good. And I didn't feel like there were going to be things that were particularly troublesome for me. And then I have this triggering moment, right? And Mm -hmm. this moment is just like assuming that my mom's going to come from Boston, come to Philly and help me because I've never had children. Um, And and, and that's what moms do. (laughs) I've come to kind of, and the thing is, I don't think I knew I had that expectation until all of a sudden I had that expectation. The naming and articulation of the expectations, you know, like there's so many things percolating within us and it isn't until they come really to the forefront that we realize they're there. Much like the pain itself, but also like the expectations of my mother. So here I was expecting her to come and assuming she would, because it's a motherly thing um, Mm -hmm. that I thought would occur. And when I realized that she was really not coming and she had, it wasn't that she was just not coming. She had no feeling about the fact that she wasn't coming. Right. It was like, whatever. It was a whatever for her. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't a whatever for me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it just felt like a blow. Mm -hmm. And the blow, because I, you know, I think of myself as being very introspective. I was like, yo, I could blow this off. I could blow off that feeling. Or I could deal with the fact that this hurts like hell. It hurt. It really hurt. And it hurt because I don't think I I had come to terms with that part of me, of that wanting that um, I think if you'd have asked me, like in a question, oh, do you care? I probably have been like, nah, or whatever I might have said. But it wasn't until I felt it that I had to figure out what the hell. It just felt like somebody had knocked me down with a big old punch and I cried and I, you know, anyone who knows me, like I'm not that girl, right? Like I just, I cried and I felt my fragility and my anger. Like it was a whole host of emotion. And one of the first persons I called was my very good friend, Mary, who knew, knows me intimately And she was so consoling about it um, and just letting me cry. But I was like, crying ain't going to be it. Like, I'm going to have to really, like, this felt, it just felt so deep for me. And I, I, it felt like this newness Mm -hmm. that I really, I I just was like, I'm really out of sorts. And I saw it. um, I am very good friends with a bunch of folks who are MSW and LCSW. Um, That is. Social workers, uh, masters in social work, Mm -hmm. clinical licensed social work, and they had practices. So Mm -hmm. they counsel people 
And I was like, I'm going to need, I'm going to need help. Like Mm -hmm. I, it just, it was too hard. Like, and I had a baby in my belly and I felt like I don't feel really good about Mm -hmm. this thing. And that really pissed me off. The (laughs) fact that I felt so not good. I'm mm-hmm, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I've dealt with hurt, but like this felt worse than anything. So I really reached out um, to my friends to ask if they could help me through this because this was a new pain for me. Um, mm-hmm. And they, that's where I went for help. And I think the mm-hmm. combination of having a friend who's a sociologist um, and a good friend and counseling from people who this is what they do um, mm-hmm. moved me forward And then Mm -hmm. I realized, oh, shit. So this is it. This is me. I'm going to have to figure out how to be all right. Because she just, my mom really passed, like, she passed the baton of pain. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, now we're going to have to drop this baton. It can't go forward. It can't Mm -hmm. go forward. (laughs) And I was just like, this shit's going to have to change. And I, I became super committed to me in that moment. So it turned out to be a gift because again, I said, I felt all right, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. wasn't really all right. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that I wasn't all right was irritating. I I, I would say I, I wasn't, I didn't have humility or grace about it. I was like, what the hell? Um, just when I thought I was fine, it turns out I ain't <laughs> fine. <laughs> you know, I'm the problem solver kind of person. I was like, well, if you ain't fine, you're going to have to figure out how to get to fine? How will you mm-hmm. really be all right? I became really more keenly focused on trying to make sure the foundation that I thought I had, I really did. I thought I was good, that I actually really was actually good. And mm-hmm. so that started a different journey for me. Okay. I love that story and your explanation of it for so many reasons. And I think it provides a roadmap for parents who are listening to this concept of how past pain interferes with parenting. So first you've said you had to realize that you had an expectation. And I can definitely relate to that because when my first was born, I too expected, my mom lived here in the city and I expected that she would be the automatic all the time babysitter. Like she would be the person I would just hand the child to, like when I got to go to the gym, I got to hear mom, you know, we are we are co-parenting, co-taking care of this baby. And my mom preemptively said to me, um, well, you know, I have a really busy schedule. So I, I want you to know that you're not going to be able to just drop the baby off with me. You know, really, I just want you to know that. So don't expect that I'm always going to be there. I mean, she said it kind of nicely, but my I was like, what? <laughs> we are not we are not co-caring for this child. You mean <laughs> it's my responsibility if I'm not with the child to figure out who's going to be. So and I, and to me, it, it, it wasn't the same level of pain, I'm sure, but it was the sense of what a, a changed expectation. So the first thing you have to realize that you had that expectation and then deal with the fact that it's, you own it and then you have to figure out what to do with it. And then secondly, recognizing it, it's a trigger. I mean, I, I too, my child was born, but I went into a little bit of a funk, like what? <laughs> I mean, you know, people don't talk about how lonely the whole motherhood thing is early days. I mean, you when you're pregnant and then when you have this child, Everybody else could disappear. I mean, they could. You don't want them to, but they could. And it's just you. It's so, just you. <laughs> I mean, but but so so recognizing that trigger and the thing you just said, which people don't talk about with respect to getting help, which is the important thing to do, obviously, to get help. But it is annoying 
for people who <laughs> for people who fancy themselves to be as pulled together as we all like to think we are. Yes, it's irritating because you're just like I'm a person that people talk to about. Like I'm not like I'm all together. I, it just it made me look at myself differently, and it made me feel more vulnerable and fragile. Um, and I didn't enjoy that. No, but that's actually, and, and, you know, I will say to, at the risk of generalizing for black women in particular, that is not a look that we are fond of. That's not part of our superpower toolkit, that sort of <laughs> finding a flaw and having to own it and work through it. That's, that's not, <laughs> our flaws magically disappear because we are super women. So I, I, I hear you. I think we need to talk. I'm glad you've talked about how you deal with the annoyance, you deal with the the sort of everybody knows they're not perfect, but this bummer sense of okay, this I thought I could handle. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I can. The thing is, like every time I think about that story, I just remember that feeling of like, am I, am I not who I think I am? Like, mm-hmm. am I really? Like now, when I had the baby in my belly, I felt like I was a one person, and then the baby's here. And somehow I'm so, I'm made so different. Mm -hmm. I'm made so different in a way that I'm not sure. I mean, at the beginning, I'm like, I'm not sure that this level of vulnerability of a feeling like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing lost. Mm -hmm. Like this ain't really my bag. Like I, Mm -hmm. I'm, I know stuff. I do (laughs) stuff like I'm competent. Right. Right. Um, and I can do this, you mm-hmm. know? And then I'm like, oh, chick, no. <laughs> <laughs> and see, it's that it's that realization that parents just have to have. And that's one of the reasons why there's people are, it's easy to not intentionally parent. It's easy to sort of just go on what you know or how you were parented or what, you know, just comes to mind. It's harder to take the, to be introspective and then say, okay, not only don't I know this, but I got to figure out this so that it works for me and that it works for my child. I mean, that's a whole nother level of work that people are not often thinking about when they're cradling the little newborn. <laughs> but, but as you know, it's, I mean, as your book talks about, it's so necessary to be in order to get to joy. And, and I, I Joyful parenting to me is is um, really such a great aspiration. It's what we all need to do. I mean, not every second can be joyful, no. but the root of it is is it, it has to be fueled by joy, or else you just it, it's not it's not good for anybody. Because it's a gig you have that you can't stop, right? Like it's just <laughs> it's, it's like it's a different thing. Like you could go work for an employer, you can be an entrepreneur. At some point, you get to like pause it. You just be like, mm-hmm. oh, today I have a day off. Especially like at the early years, right? Like it's a it's a forever gig, right? Mm-hmm. And. So you have to approach it really differently than everything else. And mm-hmm. that's why I think you have to approach it with you so much at the center because you're your forever gig. Like you always <laughs> take you. And now you always take the people who you have to care for. And so it's like, well, what's the long game? Like, I just think I see a lot of people do sprint parenting, right? They're just like, mm-hmm. oh, I just got to survive until she gets to school or he gets to school. I just got to yes. survive until they get through middle school. I just got to survive until they get through high school. I just got to. Su-. And I'm like, yo, you are exhausting. 
right? (laughs) I'm going to need you to think about pacing yourself because everything is these crises until I get to, I just, Mm -hmm. I just need to suffer until this deadline. Like I was like, this is not the move because you're going to be haggard. Oh, truly. And can I just tell you, as the parent of a 28-year-old, 25-year-old, and 21-year-old, that when all those milestones are done, the parenting gets even more intense. (laughs) I mean, it's different. It's not quite, you're not saving them from themselves as often, but you're definitely, you're, you're still, there's a lot of parenting to do. So to your point, if you're sprinting in between the, what you think are the milestones and you think it ends when they go off to college, ha! (laughs) <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You better get that oxygen tank right now because <laughs> it certainly does not. It is not. And I, the thing is, what I really want parents to get is that when the hard moments come, is that instead of trying to brush them off, because I know we have this Black woman strong um, situation, when the hard moments come, I know that we have the capacity to muscle through. Like we mm-hmm. can... We can take a a really heavy situation and we will get to the other side of that situation. My concern is that we're often impaired and the other side. And we Mm -hmm. don't think about that because we made it to the other side. But what I would argue is that we left some part of ourselves, our healthy selves back there. And Mm -hmm. I see us often making that decision. The, The suffering through right? You know, what people call surviving and thriving um, difficulties is that we're very good at problem solving, enduring, carrying. I -hmm. am just, the gift my mother gave me in that moment was the incredible pain gave me a reframe. She did not mean to give me a reframe, Mm -hmm. But she Mm -hmm. gave me the opportunity to reimagine how I was going to move forward. And with the help of therapeutic support and close friends, I was able to switch that frame to say, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a survivor. I don't want to brush this off. I want to tackle this and deal with it as deeply and as consistently as I can so that I could be new on the other side, mm-hmm. not just having survived this thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I will tell you that my mother noted the difference, right? Mm-hmm. She noted that something, you know, what she would say, something clicked, mm-hmm. that she mm-hmm. and I had a different relationship as a result of that. It was mm-hmm. less hostile. My expectations of her were different. Our communication has been different. I was changed because I dealt with it. And I just really urge us, especially Black parents, to deal with those things. We can go online. We can take our ACEs, right? We can really, this is a public examination. You Mm -hmm. can find it, adverse childhood experiences. You can really begin that as a preliminary step and just dig in. It hurts a little bit. It does. (laughs) But when you click that, something really beautiful can happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, And, you know, because you're making me think about this, the gift that I got in that moment with my mom was that for the first time, I really did view, I had a pragmatic insight that I really am responsible for my child. I think up until that point, I really, I could be, um, I could be okay with being nervous because my thought was that we're all in this together. We're, we're gonna, this village is gonna raise this child. And when I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just gonna hand it off. 
And in in the moment that she kind of very, very um, clearly cut that, closed that gate on, on that village, it helped me to say to myself, okay, all right, it is me. It's on me. And how am I going to reorient the way I'm looking at this? How am I going to own this in a good way? How am I going to take control? Let me buckle up and strap in for the long ride. And I think, frankly, it's easy to say, but I think that had I not had that kind of moment early on, I would have cared more about how what she thought about what I was doing in terms of raising my child. I would have cared. I mean, it would have been a group raising. <laughs> and I mean, my mom had great instincts, but I was able to make my own, uh, to do my research and to get to my own conclusions. And, and our instincts didn't always line up. So you're right. The, the end of that, the end of that, after you recognize your expectations and you figure out the triggers and you ask for help, the, the rainbow, the pot of gold is not only are you better for your child, but you're better for yourself. And, and I think you get more imaginative. I mean, it is not to suggest that we all need supports, right? Like we mm -hmm. all need resources and supports and community. But mm -hmm. what ended up happening was Scotty and I started to be like, well, what do we want? Like, I think that we thought that they would just tell us what kind of kid we should think about raising. But then all of a sudden, when it was us, we were like, <laughs> we were able <laughs> to start to think about, like, wouldn't it be cool if she knew everything we knew? Wouldn't it be cool if she was this way? Like, how do we, like, wouldn't it be cool if she just didn't have the baggage we had? Like, wouldn't it be, like, we just, we got more freedom. Mm, as a mm -hmm. result of that. And mm -hmm. then we were able to reorganize the relationship that these family members had with us. Because guess what? Much like when we were planning our wedding, like if you ain't got no money in the game, you don't have no say. If you don't, <laughs> right? Like if you don't, if you're not out here helping me parent this child, then you don't have no say in <laughs> what we do as parents. You are on the other side. And that has kept them, his mom, my mom, our family. They're like, well, you know, it's them. Yes, it is though. Yes, <laughs> it is though. So we have, we have had, it is, it really has been this blessing. And I want caregivers to think about extracting the good from the pain. What are the resources? What are the insights that pain can offer you? Take those forward. Mm -hmm. You do not have to carry the pain forward. You can take the gems, the resources, the insights, the imaginations that these moments have to offer. Mm -hmm. That old expression, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. You can figure out how you're getting stronger. And, and you can, if you can do it on your own, great. If you need help to do it, great. So, so the, the gift that you give us all in your book is not only do you tell us about how these things happen for you, but at the end of the chapter, you give us assignments and you give parents, you know, those of you listening, thinking this is great, but how do I do this? Well, Janice tells you how to do it. <laughs> Dr. Diaz tells us how to do it. <laughs> and, and, and so that she tells us how to get it done. And so there are, there are at the end of each chapter, uh, at the end of each section, assignments. So I urge you all to read the assignments after the who are you chapters, because it talks about how you as a parent can start to dive deep into who you are and, and how you parent, which is just key. You have a great question that you have in your introduction. What do I need to resolve in myself so that I can parent with joy? And that is the question that 
everybody needs to answer. <laughs> they need to they need to figure it out. No matter where you are in your parenting journey, you need to figure that out because as Janice says, that parenting gig is for life. And so <laughs> even if your children are beyond the, the baby years or they're up and grown, still that parenting with joy is, is critical. So thank you for that. <laughs> now that we have cl- figured out how we're going to clear our heads as parents, now we can focus on our children. <laughs> and the first thing I'm going to ask, and this I hope is a quick answer. Your focus is clearly on girls. You have one child, she's a girl, and you are, um, you've spent a lot of time with, um, not only with her, but with groups of girls. You've focused your research on girls. But isn't it fair to say that so much of your advice is useful for parents of boys as well? Yes, it is absolutely useful for boys. Um, but you know, like a good sociologist, we try to, we try to walk <laughs> our lane. Um, <laughs> but it is, there is um, all but one or two things here that I think in the book um, are not applicable to boys, but this book is very much a book where boy moms and people who have boys or combination could really benefit from um, some of the conversations that I have here and the assignments that I have here. And actually, we want to raise children now, boys and girls, who are fully cognizant of all the issues that affect all genders, boy or girl, you definitely need to get the book. (laughs) I just want to pull out a couple of things that really resonated with me in terms of what parents can do with their children. And the first is, again, something I've said a lot, but you say it so well, is that how important it is for us to talk to our children about their history. I mean, how did you go about developing the framework for giving your daughter such a positive ethnic identity? Well, you know, I mean, I'm a sociologist, so I I feel like I did have a little bit of um, an upper hand here. And I had some strong feelings about racial relations (laughs) in the United States Um, because, you know, I I grew up with a national identity and not a very heavy racial Mm -hmm. identity. And then I developed a really strong racial identity as a Black person. And being in America all these many years, um, I have lots of feelings about America. Mostly I love America because it's done some really wonderful things for me. But I'm constantly irritated by the racial conversation. And so by the time I had a kid, I, I knew I had some strong feelings about it. And I, I knew there, there was, even if I hadn't solved the pain issue, the race one, I was going to be intentional on. You're going to go out in the world and people are going to try to tell you a bunch of things about yourself, but you have to know who you are. My grandmother used to say, you need to be like a tree planted by the river, right? Is that no matter what the water comes, is that you already have a natural resource that's feeding you. You can sway, but you're Mm -hmm, planted. mm -hmm. And I wanted her racial identity, her connection to Africa, her connection to people indigenous, to Black people indigenous to the United States. I wanted her to see that we're connected. And anyone who would suggest that you're not connected is first uninformed. Secondly, right? Deeply uninformed and third, Mm -hmm. likely an idiot. So you don't have to listen to them and you don't have to buy into anything that they say. And I just sent her out in the good world. And she always had Africa as the central point. Like, oh, don't talk to me. Do you know that we're all from Africa? Mm -hmm. Don't talk to me. We all from Africa. That's where I'm from. Everybody who I know is from you from there too, you and all your people. So she had Africa Mm -hmm. as the center. And then she had 
Jamaica. She had Cape Verde Island. She had these things, but she saw herself as being from people who started the universe. And so in that respect, they couldn't, they just could there was nothing that people could do to make that small because it was mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. clear, right? And every attempt to try to move that. Has and failed. you did that because um, I imagine parents want to know how to do that. You did that by exposing her to books, talking to her about it at home. Yeah. So we got a great book, my first mm-hmm. book on Africa. I really loved that book. Um, it was, it's not a, it's, it actually has photographs in it of a little girl and her first ever mm. trip to Africa. The text is, I think, you know, middle mm-hmm. age group, but I wanted her to see the pictures. And what's great is that they have parallels in the book of like, what's on the dollar bill, the oblesque, right? All of these things that she could see that America has really adopted. You know, my husband loves geography and he's a geographer. So the map. So we talked to her because kids have a lot of questions of like, where are mm-hmm. people from? Right. Like they just ask, like, where do people come from? And so it was like all people come from Africa. Then we watched a lot of the documentary um, Eve. Mm. They call her Eve. That was a part of Super Camp. So she could see that this concept because she was going to hear about Adam and Eve and just like the common way people mm-hmm. talk about religion. And it was like, well, here's the real Eve is the name of the documentary. So she just kind of grew up where the conversations in the house, the things that we expose her to always connected Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. back to Africa. And then we have this affirmation that's a part of grassroots that says, we are the children of Africa. We practice ma'at, truth, order, balance, and reciprocity. Like the Sankofa bird, we look to our past so that we can be our best today and every day. And Dr. Sandra Lewis developed that affirmation for the girls because we wanted to make sure that they understood and always felt this connection to the source, which is the continent Mm -hmm, of Africa. mm -hmm. And then, you know, um, the question for her over the years was like, well, how come there are all these people in South America, in Caribbean, et cetera? It was easier to explain to her all of those things if we started Mm, with Africa. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It becomes more difficult when you racialize it first without giving a historical perspective. And then she could see herself as African with these African people who were displaced across the globe and her connection. Ah, that oh, that way. makes so much sense. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I believe one of the strongest ways to give your child self-confidence as what you have described exemplifies is to give them a sense of belonging and, and where they belong historically within your particular family and in the world. So you've done a wonderful job with that. That's such a great point in your book. The other one that I'm so excited that you touch on is the use of social media and kids. And and I I want to talk about it in in two ways. One, I mean, your daughter has done so, so many amazing things and she has been a big beneficiary of social media, but this all happened for her when she was very young. And so you as parents had to really monitor how she interacted with social media and to protect her from some of the less desirable aspects of shouting into the world and having the world shout back. (laughs) And so can you talk a little bit about how you um, went about monitoring what she did and how you talked to her about the importance of you being a necessary partner in her social media uh, excursions and her journey? 
Yeah, so I will say this for all the caregivers listening. The upside of the intentional way I am and this um, perspective of being a child who is a descendant of Africa, a child who reads, a child who has autonomy, is that my child is really, she's really kind and she's a good listener. She would be what old people call like an obedient Mm -hmm. child, right? She's an obedient child. This is a blessing. Um, That is not to say she is currently 16 years old. She's still an obedient child, but she really a teenager, okay? (laughs) Just want to put that all in perspective. But on average, Marley is a fairly obedient, well-behaved mm-hmm. child. And so because we have been in conversation her whole life and conversations that give explanations, she has had a lot of opportunity to think about what we ask mm-hmm. her to do. And I really feel like that's a foundation for the social media engagement. Marley's also been a child who has had many spaces to express herself, right? So she's a kid who doesn't necessarily have the second and third voice that she has to hold tight to because she doesn't get to really have a lot of voice in the family decisions, in her social space. So these, I think, are precursors to social media. And I I just really want to emphasize that. So here she is, the campaign, the 1000 Black Girl Books campaign gets large. And we now have um, a PR agency saying, you know, I know that you've been posting stuff on your Facebook, but she really should have her own. And we were like, yeah, but no, no. (laughs) Right. Um, And in large part, we said no, because like every parent listening around the world, we just have a lot of cautions about social media. But the campaign kept growing and I have a really independent Mm -hmm. voice and I did not want to be speaking Mm -hmm. for her. I'm not 11. I don't think 11-year-old things. I don't know what 11-year-old social media is like. And so we had to figure out how to give her a space to do that, but a space that had a Mm -hmm, safety net. mm -hmm. And so Scott and I were both on Facebook. Scott, I think, was on Twitter. I tend to avoid Twitter um, because I feel like people wake up mad. (laughs) I don't really do that. (laughs) And so and I am really good at my phone. So I'm like a super texter, um, a shortcut keyer. So I knew um, and I had great facility. So we sat and talked with her about being on Instagram. And at that point, Instagram was coming up, but her friends didn't have phones Mm -hmm. per se. And she was excited to be on Instagram, but she didn't really know what it meant. So the conditions to be on Instagram was anything you write on Instagram, your grandmother, Scott's mother, who is um, is very, very conservative. conservative. That's my favorite. Probably she's extremely conservative. Mm-hmm. Is that whatever it is you write, if Grammy saw it, she wouldn't be mm-hmm. bothered. So Grammy became the benchmark, right? So Marty was intimately familiar with the fact that her Grammy, anything could be, you know, she is the bar for conservative beliefs and articulation. So she had to. So anything that you want to write on Instagram, 
it needs to pass the Grammy <laughs> test. And Scott and I monitored that account along with the PR agency to see, mm-hmm. right? And what I write in the book, and I still say, is I wish that DMing was something that we could cut off and we couldn't. So a part of being on Instagram is that anybody can DM mm-hmm. you. And that meant that we were going to have to pay closer attention and monitor her DMs to see who was writing mm-hmm. to her. And um, that became a new job. It felt tedious, but it felt important in the way that you would watch her at the playground. Like sometimes you want to bring her to the playground so you don't have to pay attention, but you know you have to pay attention because she could yeah, slip and yeah. fall. And so... Nighttime was when we spent a lot of evenings going through all the DMs, making sure that people didn't write salacious, problematic things to her. And over the years, you know, we've gotten a small amount relative to the people that we know because she has been cautious. She's made stupid mistakes and has posted some dumb things. Um, But on average, I would say she's batting a high B plus A minus on mm-hmm, social media. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are two things that I want to emphasize about that. First of all, um, I've always talked about how parents cannot be ostriches with respect to social media. Your children have it. You may think they're too young. They have access to it. And they, they, so you're just because you don't want to know about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So as you say in your book, parents should make it their business to stay current with the various social media opportunities and outlets the other thing that you just said, which is really true, is it's a lot of work. It's an effort. And it's not an effort that a lot of parents are going to naturally gravitate to because they don't want to know about what's going on. I mean, they don't know. It's hard. It feels like it's unless you are, are, are a natural tech person or a natural social media person, and few of us are, it's just one more thing that you don't want to have to do. But it is critical. It really is critical. I mean, you say in your book, and it's so true, that the research really can't stay abreast of the uh, technology. I mean, we don't know yet. We have no idea. For some kids, it's the greatest thing. It helps them feel less isolated. And for some other kids, it does a number on their health and well-being. And so for us, it's it's really mediating. It's mediating. It is making space for. My kid took I think six months off at the height of, you know, this blue check mark she got on Instagram. She posted a whole month of things around women, particularly women with intersectional identity, gay women, trans women for the month of March mm-hmm. last March. And she lost like 40,000. Oh, interesting. Because her fan base was like, we're not mm-hmm. here for it. And you know what she did? She was like, I'm not posting no more. And she, <laughs> she quit. She completely quit it. She was like, they don't want to hear because she knows now, right? Now she's savvy. She's like, I know it's a performative space, but I don't want to perform in this space. There are a bunch of stuff that I care about. So she stopped from March to July. She just was like, I'm not posting. And every day you would watch the followers drop and drop and drop and drop. And she came back in July because she started reading stories to kids aloud. And she made a video like, look, I stopped coming on this platform because a bunch of y'all were not interested. You wanted me to be performative. You wanted me to post a picture of myself smiling. And I didn't want to do that. There are these issues that I really care about. Mm -hmm. 
And what I really like is this thing that I keep pushing parents is that if kids have no way of expressing themselves, they're going to do it through this Absolutely. medium. They're going to find a way. They're going to go to TikTok. They're going to go to, you know, all of them make space for kids in their real lives so they do not go to social media to express themselves there is that we have to carve out spaces for their voices to be heard in their real lives. Social media should be a reflection of their real lives versus an imagined space or a space where they have to go and seek out something they don't have. And that, I think, will help us create healthier Absolutely. children. Absolutely. I, I fully agree with that. I, I'm a firm believer in um, being that parent that does make sure they're a part of the social media, make this back when my children were young, it was Facebook. That was the thing that they were going on to. And I insisted that they befriend us, that they friend us on Facebook. I, I insisted that we had to be friends and, and parents, your children that have Instagrams insist that you can follow them. It's irresponsible to give these little people an opportunity to, it's like putting your kid in the middle of the street with a megaphone by themselves. You just hit something. So I have Six friends who are like, well, you know, she wanted to have a private account and I figured I should just let her do that because that's her private space. Are you wackadoodoo? No, right? Like this social media is not a private right. space. No. It is not. It is not a private space. If you feel like if your children really clearly Children have their own voices, their own friendship groups, right? They can FaceTime each other and say all kinds of foolishness they want to with each other, talk about all kinds of stuff, but they are at least then engaged with it. I don't want the electronic space, the texting space, and I mean it, I, you know, I, we have sat with her. I don't want your texting space, your social media space where somebody can screenshot and elevate Simple discussions to be private. They're not Absolutely. private. They're public. Absolutely. Texting is public. I have had to teach my daughter this for the time. I was like, you do not understand that texting is public. And let me explain to you why texting. I even at the foundation, I brought in two cyber people to come in and talk to them about why texting is not mm -hmm. private. Mm -hmm. If you want to say something to a person, call them. Right. Call them and in before COVID, ask if you can meet at a mm -hmm. place. Talk to people. That's private because the luxuries that we had as a kid, um, as young people, I have really impressed upon all the girls I work with, their families, and to my own child. Look, when something went wrong, it didn't get elevated because it was a short moment in time. Now, you all amplify things. You write comments that somebody will see a week from now. You've moved on, but the comment is still there. You now have these things that have been screenshot and are now shared on group text that then people come back a year later. You don't have this opportunity to have these short moments of problematic things that gets resolved. Things yes. linger. And so to reduce lingering, talk. <laughs> talk. That is is absolutely great advice. Parents, encourage talking. <laughs> your, your children need to talk and not text. So, Janice, I could, speaking of talking, I could continue to talk to you. I haven't even gotten through half of the things that I wanted to bring up from your book, 
But I'm going to wrap it up here. First, I want to say thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, and I'm sure parents listening really appreciated hearing your experiences and your advice. But there's one more thing before we go, and that is you have to play the GCP bonus round. So there are two questions. So the two questions are your favorite poem and your favorite two children's books. Oh, my favorite poem. I would say my favorite poem is actually a psalm um, from, you know, when I was a kid. So I write a lot about love in Sunday school and um, we used to have to memorize psalms. And so my grandmother was always really serious about um, the psalm that says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And um, it's almost hard for me to say it without a Jamaican accent. The meek shall inherit the earth. Um, Because it was this, she was always really clear that we needed to be humble in every moment. Um, And that even though we were so poor, that we had land and that meant that we had to exercise a a level of humility. So I always keep that whenever um, there's any boastfulness that will rise in me to remember the meek shall inherit the earth. Great, great. And so this next one may be easy for you. (laughs) Your favorite two children's books. And considering that your daughter has brought so many books to your attention, surely (laughs) you might have two favorites among them. I do. I do. I have some good ones. Um, there, no mirrors in my Nana's house is one of the fav- one of the books I used to read to her all the time. It's actually has it's a sweet based off a sweet honey and the rock song, and um, both the philosophy and the book. The book struck me. It doesn't have a lot of faces, but it's really about um, children being able to recognize their beauty, and that grandparents again are really good at making children feel beautiful. Um, And so there's no mirrors in her Nana's house because um, her Nana serves as a mirror. And we have used it in our work as being your sister's keeper. Like just, you don't need a mirror if you have your sister's eyes. And I realized I grew up without any mirrors in my actual actual house that I grew up in. And in fact, even in the house that I live in now, I think we have only four mirrors. Um, so wow. we have a lot of mirrors, so we are each other's um mirror, and and, and so, that was that was a conscious decision for you I, I in just, your house. Yeah, I just think I we never of all the things to have in a house when you're poor, it, mirrors <laughs> seem so inconsequential. <laughs> well, this is true, but I mean, in your current house, in it was a conscious house, decision. Just, I just got a mirror. We have our first fake full length mirror. Everyone here is five ten or t- and we actually don't even have a full, like it's just not a central part um, of ourselves is that the reflections that we're thinking about are in our eyes and mm-hmm. how we see each other um, and not this kind of obsession with our, um, our physical self. There's, it's yeah, again, it's the slippery slope that we're always trying to, at least I'm always trying to manage and manage for my family. So I really like No Mirrors in My Nana's House. And the other one I like is a really funny one that we laugh about. It's Croc on the Rock. <laughs> is, Croc on the Rock is a little book about a white boy and fishing. And he thinks that he's about to catch a fish, but it's actually a rock that's in the water. And what makes the book funny is that it was one of the the first really complete stories that Marley read. Mm -hmm. And um, her father is a big fisherman. And 
And the story, it has a central white character, which is why she's always like, I'm not against white boys in books. It's just I'm against the idea that they're the only ones that get spotlighted. But Crock on the Rock was a book she read over and over again. The words rhyme. We could laugh about it. We could always identify with the story because so much of our lives is organized around Scott trying to get to fishing, coming back from fishing, catching fish, um, (laughs) and all the rest of those. And I just think it's a great metered rhyme book. Um, that makes children feel competent because it's it's a nice size. I think it's almost like a seven by three book and it's um, it feels good in the hand and the story's engaged and it has animals and water and all the rest of those things. So those were um, two of my favorite childhood uh, children's books. But I have so many now. <laughs> I'm sure. It was hard to choose, but I wanted to choose the two that really... Um, were always so much a part of Marley's early life. Mm-hmm. That I love that second choice also because it really speaks to what Marley has been talking about. You can derive inspiration and you can love books no matter who the people are in them. I mean, it's really important for everyone to look at all books. And so just as you can really feel strongly about Crack on the Rock and the the, the central character is not a Black girl, young black white boys can look at all of parent all the books that feature black girls and really relate to them. So it's basically just trying to even out the playing field to where it should be. So yes, I mean I it's it's not an uncomplicated thing. No, it's not complicated. <laughs> we can learn something. Kind of basic actually. So again, uh, the, uh, those are great answers. No no surprise there. And I thank you so much. And I also want to thank the wonderful best-selling author Jacqueline Woodson for bringing us together. I mean, she's a amazing. You're amazing. So it's great. So so excited. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. And thank you for having me. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcast and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.